haven't had our regular Wednesday night principles for life in a few weeks. Again, that holidays were going on, and then uh, the host church here, uh, where we where, where we lease from, um, they were painting cabinets and things, and so they were taking up the whole lower level. And I thought, well, we'd have to keep the kids upstairs, but then I was also concerned about the fumes that would be filling the sanctuary. So I just erred on the side of caution. It was right before Christmas, and we just canceled that service, which I don't like to do, but I know you all understand. And so I look forward to jumping back to the series that we launched in December. And the last time we got together, we were looking at the power of the word, the power of the word. And I ended that last lesson, which I'm sure you all remember distinctly in your mind because you hang on my every word when I'm in the pulpit. But just to remind those of you that didn't, uh, we ended with this passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, all scripture, I like that, not some, not most, not the majority, but all scripture is inspired by God. Inspired there means God breathed. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. Guess what? There's sometimes some things that are wrong in our lives. Thank God for the word that points it out. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The word is not just there for you, but it's to equip you to do what he's calling you to do. And so the Bible will transform us if we let it. God's goal was his word was never to just impart information. His goal was never just for you to be able to only quote the 66 books of the Bible or to just be able to talk about what year that you think Jesus was born or uh, how many people were in the upper room. Those are great things, and I think we should know those things, but it was not just for information. It was for transformation. And so, When we read and interact with the word, we should be doing so with transformation in mind and not just information, because I think that that's important too, because it's going to revitalize your your interaction with the word, because if all it is is a box that we check and the information we have to get through to say, I read the Bible through and did my bread chart, then we're not reading for transformation, but I want to go into the word every time and go... God, you could change my life right here in this next moment. You could show me something that I've never seen before. You can correct me. You could inspire me. You could encourage me. Something can happen in the next few minutes as I open up this book. And so we're going to talk about reading the Bible for transformation. The Apostle Paul said to the Roman believers in Romans 12 too, he said, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Chances are you've been in church, any church, for any extended period of time. You've heard this passage read. And I've preached this passage a lot of different ways because it's jam-packed with great, great information. But... What I will say is, uh, I think sometimes we focus on the not being conformed, to be separated, sanctified, and I think that's crucial and important. However, I want to say, what about the transformation part? What about that part? How are we transformed by the renewing of our minds? How do we incorporate the truth of Scripture into our everyday thinking, into our affections, into our thoughts? How do we interact with God in such a way where His Word brings transformation to our lives? 
And the transformation should not just be the initial sign, the initial repentance at an altar, being baptized in Jesus' name, the initial sign of the infilling of the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Absolutely, that needs to happen. That's scriptural. But that is not the last transformation we should experience from Scripture. I pray that I am being transformed daily. I, I pray that my mind is being renewed on a daily basis. But that can't happen in my life if I'm just waiting for the pulpit two times a week. And so centuries ago, as we look into this word, we, we have one more week on this series. We're going to do it next Wednesday also and wrap it up then. But I want to talk about kind of a little bit this, this word that we hold and that we read and study. Centuries ago, religions had turned their focus more toward traditions and what I would say catechisms. And they, and they forced certain principles upon people that are not in the Bible. And where that happened is because the Bible started getting translated and eventually it was translated into Latin. And so services were conducted in Latin. To this day, if you go to certain denominations, they will do chants and they will say things to this day in Latin. And it's based on a tradition of their church, of their history. But you will find even in here in the United States of America, the majority of the congregation does not speak a word of Latin. But yet there'll be chants and there'll be statements and there'll be things that are done in Latin because of the tradition of the church. Now, I'm not standing here to try to speak ill or derogatory toward a church, but I want you to understand that a lot of these things that were done, they were extra biblical. And so that's not necessarily a problem if you don't try to pose it as biblical. Like, if, For instance, if you want to light candles in church or something, I, we don't do that here. It's not found in the Bible where you're called to do that. But it's not necessarily against Scripture if you wanted to have a candlelight service or something like that. Um, but now when a priest is being told that you have to remain unmarried, celibacy was forced upon clergy that actually is extra biblical because scripture says if you want to be the, the desire of the office of a bishop, you desire a good thing. And the first thing it says is you should be the husband of one wife. And so to say, I'm going to force celibacy now upon, upon clergy, what you're going to get is what we've seen in, in some denominations where God has created humankind with a, an appetite for sexuality. And I'm sorry if that makes you feel uncomfortable, but that is true. And so... That's why the Bible says that you should be with one wife and that, that, that if I could really get awkward with you where it says you should make yourself happy with just that one person. And so these are all scriptural things. Sometimes I know people are like, I can't believe you say that. I'm going to say things in the Bible and I'm really, there's no topic under the sun that makes me feel uncomfortable. And I've done enough counseling now where there's nothing that surprises me in counseling and nothing that makes me feel uncomfortable. So sorry if it does you, but I'm going to talk about scriptural principles. The world is talking openly about these things. So we better talk openly about these things. And so, uh, so this right here, what you're seeing is now things are being done even in church settings over the last two, three decades, probably longer, but we're just starting to hear about it because of social media mainstream news that are vile, disgusting, despicable. And, and, and I would argue that's because centuries ago, things were forced on humanity that were not biblical. 
And so what happens is um, services are being conducted in Latin. The average person of that day did not speak Latin. They did not read Latin. And so whoever was the priest, the clergy, uh, you had clergy up here and the lay people down here, which I don't see in Scripture. I don't think that I'm elevated higher than you. Maybe right now, just so you can see me on a platform, but not necessarily in, in life because I carry a ministerial license that I'm up here and you all are down here. That's crazy. But that was kind of the mindset. And so they, if you, and again, if you're looking at me saying, I don't believe this, study it, look into it, please look for yourself. You will find history points to what I'm telling you as true. And so they would say, okay, a clergy is the only one who is qualified to handle scripture. And so they would read things in, in, in Latin. No one had their copies of the Bible. No one had their own copies. It wasn't in their language because I was the only person who was qualified to tell you what Scripture says and what it means. So I don't only do the reading, but I also do the application. You see a problem there? Because now I, I hold all authority. The authority is not in Scripture. The authority is in my interpretation and application of Scripture. So I can get up. You don't have your own copy of the Bible. It's not in your language. And I can say, Scripture says this, and this is what it means. And so today in this church, this is what we are going to do. And that caused a lot of problems over hundreds and hundreds of years and so at that point, brave men and women, women sought to reclaim the centrality of the Bible in worship in their, their community of faith. And this time period, you've probably heard this term, is known as the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was a religious reform movement that swept through Europe really in the 1500s. It resulted in the creation of a branch of Christianity called Protestantism. Even to this day, you might get in a conversation. Has anyone ever been in a conversation where they say, are you Protestant or are, are, you, are you of a Protestant religion? You, a handful of you have. And you might be like, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe you do know. Maybe you know more than me. I'm not sure. But what this is, for those that maybe don't know, is it was a name used collectively to refer to the many religious groups that separated from the Roman Catholic Church due to differences in doctrine. They were protesting what the Roman Catholic Church was doing at that time. So Protestantism says, I'm protesting what you're doing. I'm protesting your approach. I'm protesting what you're saying is correct. And so the reformers championed something in Latin, which is called sola scriptura. What do you think sola scriptura means? Well, it's a belief, says scripture alone, just scripture. And so this is the belief that the Bible alone bears the authority in all things to life and godliness. They said, no, not your interpretation. No, not your application. It should be just scripture. And to this day, I want you to know that I still am the same way of sola scriptura. I'm not going to stand in this pulpit. I do my best. You're not going to hear me say, guys, my opinion on this scripture is, who cares what my opinion is? You might because you like me and I'm your pastor, but ultimately my opinion does not put someone in heaven or hell. It is the word of God alone, sola scriptura. So we have to be able to say, I want my own copy of the Bible. I want it in my own language. I want to be able to read it for myself and let God's word speak to me. 
In some ways, when you say, well, no, 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 you're not capable. What a slap in the face to people. You're not capable of understanding Scripture. I need to read it and tell you how to apply it to your life. That's dangerous. Puts way too much power in clergy's hands, in my opinion. And I believe that goes back. That, takes, that doesn't take us forward. That takes us back. That reminds me very much of an Old Testament system where everything needs to work through a high priest and you're not qualified to come into the presence of God or to interact with his word. Where I go, no, 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 no. There's a thing called Calvary where Jesus Christ took on flesh and died on a cross and that veil was torn so I can not only interact with him, but I can interact with his word. I don't need to work through someone else. And so, this is the belief that the Bible alone bears the authority. And as the Reformation spread across Europe during the 16th and 17th century, a new generation of Christians carried the Reformation torch through the English-speaking world. These, what we would call Puritans, as they became known, inherited the Reformation theology of some of their predecessors. If you've heard names like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, among others, who, who looked at and they, and they clothed it with pa- practical application, some of the, these Reformation mindsets. And so they, they set out to purify the church. And they said, you know, Puritan said, I want to purify the church of its unbiblical vestiges of man-centered theology. I, I don't want, that shouldn't be there. It should be sola scriptura. And so the zeal for that soon engendered persecution because if you stand up against a system that has been around for a couple thousands or a couple hundreds of years uh, and you stand up and start to say no, and you say, I'm going to go and put my theses on the door and say, enough's enough, this is where we disagree. Most of the time when it's grown that much, people are not going to just say, you know what, it wasn't where we are today, where people say, you know, we need to accept all patterns of thinking. But even the people today that say that tend not to do so. And back then, the power was in the church where that's why when you ever have a conversation with somebody and they say, yeah, but how can you be a church? Church has murdered people through the ages. And you're like, no, they have not. Just be careful what you say because they did. It wasn't what we believe. It wasn't our sect of thinking. And that's why today when people will say, well, Pentecostalists, are you guys Reformationists? Are you, do you align with the people of the Reformation? And, uh, and, and I will say it's interesting because I don't agree with all the theology. I think someone like Martin Luther, where we get the Lutheran religion, I think where he started was amazing. I think he said, here's my, my theses I'm putting on the door, and we need to get away from this. And I think people need to be able to get the word. And, and, and I think he started great. But then... He got so consumed with his own way of thinking that he started being willing to put people to death and kind of, kind of went right to the people he was trying to break free from. And so when people say to, oh, Pentecostal, are you guys reformationists? Are you still trying to reform? No, 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 I would say I'm not. I would say I'm a restorationist. Well, what does that mean? I'm not, I'm not trying to reform something the Catholic Church or any other church did. The church and the denomination is just people's way of trying to label themselves and reach toward God. You know what I want to do? I want to not reform anything any man or woman did. I want to restore 
what Jesus Christ did. And guess what he did? I don't go back to the 1500s, to the Reformation. I go back further than that. I go back to about 33, 36, 40 AD, where I read about hand-picked people who were called by Jesus, that gathered in an upper room, that he poured out his spirit upon all flesh, that they preached the oneness of God, water baptism in Jesus' name, infilling of the spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, that they empowered the church, that they believed in both men and women in ministry, that they believed in signs, wonders, and miracles. That's the church that I, re- I-, I want to restore that church, not reform something else. And so, and so this is important that as we study the word, as we define ourselves as word people, because I think if you say, well, Pentecostals, we're people of the word. Great. But then you just better understand how we got the word and why you believe the word. And so uh, their zeal for solo scripture engendered persecution. Many of them faced torture, imprisonment, even death. And so while I want you to understand, I do not agree with all of the theology and the methods and the approach of, of reformationists. I do see the beauty in what they did for humanity. I appreciate their contributions that got us from where we were to where we are. One of the greatest names I can bring up today is that of William Tyndale. Anyone ever heard the name William Tyndale? He was a Protestant martyr. So again, Protestant, he was protesting what was going on. He was a Protestant martyr, martyr, somebody who gave their life for the cause of Christ, something they believed in. And he was the first to translate the Bible. And there were other people that started the process, but he often gets credit as being the first to translate the Bible from the original Greek because New Testament, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and then the New Testament was written in Greek. Thanks to Alexander the Great and his conquering and Greek became... That, that, that main language. And so uh, New Testament was written in Greek, and he was the first to translate this into English text, that Greek into English. And he, among others, worked to get this done. They did not feel like scriptures should only be in Latin. The average person, as I said, didn't even read or speak Latin. That allowed churches, leaders, to, to translate and apply. And he says, no, 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 that, that, that shouldn't be that way. And so he said, I believe every person should have their own Bible. Oh, but that's dangerous. Put God's word in the hand of the peasant. That was the mindset. Well, he eventually was killed along with many others for making that dream a reality. So when you can just go to a Bible bookstore or to Walmart or jump online, you can grab whatever translation you want, your language. Most of you probably have multiple copies of Scripture laying in your house. Some of them you haven't touched. Some of them you do read daily. Some of them you're like, oh, yeah, that was mine when I was a teenager. My kids got a few. Chances are our kids even have three, four copies. Someone died to make sure that that happened. And so I don't want to just honor even just God. God is so powerful that he preserved his word. But I'm thankful for people who were willing to pay a price to make sure that that happened. And so I'm thankful to have the written word in in my language to where I can read it every day. God uses his word to both save and sanctify people. Romans 10, 17 says, it says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The only time that you get the word should not be Wednesdays and Sundays. I just, I feel low on faith right now. 
Well, guess what I'm going to suggest? Get in the Word. Because when you begin to read stories, kind of like I said, oh, has my faith been tested through this process of building construction? Absolutely. But when I feel faith being tested, I go back to the Word and I say, hold it a second here, like I talked about in our message on the journey. I said, hold it a second. Any person who God called out of a place into another place that remained faithful to him, never once did he ever let them down. He never, ever, ever let them down. So my faith is built by reading the accounts of people who have gone before me. And so when I try to live life in faith, you're going to be tested regularly. And when you try to do that without building faith, and all it is is faith is being challenged, tested, depleted, and you're never replenishing faith, you're not going to last long in Christianity. And so we, the word has to be our daily bread. It has to be our sustenance for the spiritual man and women. That it has to be something that I'm, in, I'm, I'm ingesting daily. That I'm going, oh no, I'm not going to be malnourished spiritually. I'm going to feed my spiritual self. And I do that through the word. And so Paul tells the church in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The message of Scripture, the gospel, meaning the good news, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is power unto salvation. Scripture is a means by which God saves and sanctifies his people. But we've seen a deep problem developing. Christians in Western society, that's us, this side of the world, have become biblically illiterate. So faith, yeah, but faith has dwindled in the United States. I would directly correlate to the the fact that faith has dwindled because reading, studying the word has dwindled. Because what's happening is concerning to me is when the atheist or the agnostic says, I don't read the word, I don't believe in the word, I want to see that change. But that's not my greatest concern. My greatest concern is when the child of God who goes to church and claims to be a spirit-filled child of God, living for God, believing God, when we are not reading his word. That's the concern. Most in society do not know the books of the Bible. The Ten Commandments, or even the events of Jesus Christ's life. Some cannot articulate the great blessing of redemption from both the Old and the New Testament. Many don't know biblical terms, basic words like justification, adoption, sanctification. And if you're here going, oh my Lord, I don't know those things either. Well then, get studying. Open the Word. Start looking into those things. I'm not knocking you. I'm saying I'm challenging you. These are things you should know. You should be able to see the blood through the Old Testament and the New Testament. You should be able to see water baptism is not something that started with Peter in Acts 2. This is something that God was planning since the beginning of time. A spirit infilling did not start with Acts 2. God had a plan since the beginning of time to fill his spirit with people with his spirit, to walk with them. Uh, I mean, even Moses talked about he wished everybody would prophesy. There are things that were transpiring in humanity that God has always had a plan. The boat of Noah was not just some random boat. There was a theme of salvation that was found there that you find in the New Testament. These are things that if you have not gone through a Bible study, go through these things. It's time to start teaching Bible studies. And so 
much of the biblical illiteracy stems from a simple lack of reading scripture. People are buying Bibles still, best-selling book of all time. They're still buying Bibles. They're just not reading them. Let that not be said of the church. We must not only read the Bible, as we talked about that last time we got together. Um, you could go back and listen to that. But when we do, we must also read it with the expectation, God, you are at work right now. This is not checking a box. God, I'm interacting with something that you had someone pen. They wrote, they wrote down the words that you told them to say, and they studied the, 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 the history of their time, and they compiled these books, and then it was translated, and, 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 you, and you preserved it, and then you had people give their lives to get it into my language, and through the years, it's been translated and preserved and handed down, and now here I hold this book. Do you know there's been times in my life, it might sound crazy, there's actually been times in my life that I pick up the Bible, the binding itself, the pages, that's not, it's, that's not what's inspired. I think respect the Bible, absolutely, but it's the word, the everlasting word. If you wrote it on vellum or parchment or paper or walls, like it's, it's, it's the word. It's not necessarily the material that it was written on. But there's still something about my Bible that there's been times that I've actually picked up the physical copy of my Bible and I've gone like this and embraced it. Because I'm like, God, you preserved this for me. Love letters, history, theology. And you gave it to me for this moment next to my bowl of cereal. That I'm going to open this thing and I'm going to begin to read as I start my day. And as I read this, I think about someone died. Multiple people died. So I could enjoy this moment in my language. Wow. Lord, let me never take that for granted. Because guess what? You read it in an Acts. When they tried to change the course of people's lives, they would burn the books. There might be a time. There might be a time where they may be trying to come for the word. And then what? Well, I pray that we're strong enough that even if they take the physical copy of our word, that we've hidden it in our heart. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures long ago is the same Holy Spirit who illuminates and applies scripture as we read them. So we read with expectancy. My prayer as I read is Psalm 119, 18. Open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. One English preacher of the 1600s said, when you read the word, let it not only inform you, but inflame you. Now, we read, a, we read a quote like that, but again, think of the time. I said in the 1600s. So they're just now starting to get to read the word in their language. And this preacher, this English preacher says, hey, now folks, when you read this word, don't just let it inform you. Let it inflame you. And we just think about that topic, and if I don't stop there, we, we move on and don't think, no, this was during that heart of that Reformation. This was, this was as they were just starting to get that word. You look, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the, the video of when uh, people in China received a box of Bibles. And some of these nations that, that are 
communist, communistic nations there, the word is not just freely distributed. Watch someone who receives the Bible for the first time. The tears, the excitement, the jumping up and down, the joy as they hug this book that they now get for the first time. The psalmist also writes, 119.11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. If you struggle with sin and you, I just keep falling back, I keep going back into it, there's a key, and that is get the word in your heart. Get the word in your heart. Because part of the reason I hide the word in my heart is so that I might not sin against him. Because then sin is defined. It's clarified. I see people who did and didn't sin, what the, what the parameters of sin are. I see what the reward is if I don't sin. And, and so there are things in me that go, no, no, no. I, I, wanna, I know my humanity. I know flesh wants sin at times. But this is why I'm not willing to partake in it. Because I've been in his word and I've hid in my heart that that's not what I want. I want this more. Because if all your, your flesh, if all you're ever doing in your flesh is denying it, deny, deny, I can't do that, I can't look at that, I can't watch that, I can't wear that, I can't, oh, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And you forget about, no, no, the reason I choose not to is because this is so much greater. I'm not saying I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, and my humanity, my flesh is, oh, I can't go to church. I just got to go to church. Everything's restricting. No, it's not what I can't do. It's what I choose not to do to focus on what is much greater, much more eternal than that. And so we have to keep that perspective in mind. The Apostle Paul teaches that Christians should put on the full armor of God. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put the whole armor of God, put it on, he says, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, or because of that, you got to put on the armor of God, the whole armor of God. That you can withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul lists the belt, the breastplate, the sandals, the shield, the helmet. However, he gives one final and essential piece to the arm. And he says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word for word here in Greek is that unusual word, rima, that, that spoken word. In order for Christian, a Christian to pick up his sword and speak God's word in battle, he has to know the word in his heart. That's why... When Jesus, before he starts his public ministry, he goes on that fast and goes out into the wilderness, and he's assaulted by the devil. And in his humanity, of course, he's God manifest in flesh, but he chose to take on humanity. He didn't cheat. He didn't have a divine flesh, like some have said through the years. He was walking in human flesh, 100% God, 100% man at the exact same time. So he hungered. He was, he, the Bible says he was tempted in all manner and points as we are yet without sin. You are not going to be tempted if you have a fake divine flesh. He chose to take on some of these limitations that we have as humans. And so he's in the wilderness, and the devil starts tempting him. And what did Jesus do every single time? He rebuked him, 
by saying, the word says, God has said. He kept going back to the word and quoting the word, and that's how he defeated the devil. When you're in the midst of temptation and trials, sometimes we look to ourselves to try and figure out the answers. Go to the word. The word will build your faith, but the, also the word will be the sword because there's times where you, you can't just be defensive. God did not say, he did not say, Paul, tell them to just take defensive things in the breastplate and the righteousness and the faith and the shield. No, he says, and then you need to have a sword. And the sword of the spirit is the word of God because there are going to be times that you're going to come up against things that instead of going, just please leave me alone, I'm trying, God help me. You can say, in the name of Jesus, I say, get thee hence. Greater is he that lives in me than he that lives in me. And you begin to just say things in the scripture. You, you, begin to, you can begin to fight back. You can't fight back if you don't know the word. And so the word has to be hid in our heart so that when the devil and the enemy just try to assault us, we can begin to say, no, 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 because God has spoken this. God has spoken this. You begin to speak to your situation with the sword of the spirit. It's crucial for us. Oh, how we need to write God's word on the tablet of our hearts. We need to hide it in our heart. This is never going to happen if we don't interact with it, if we don't read it for transformation. We have to meditate on it daily. And to clarify, when I talk about meditation, we're not talking about the Eastern religious practice of crossing your legs and going, Om, Om. That's an emptying of your mind. Far from it. Biblical meditation seeks to fill our mind with truth of the biblical text. Notice there's a huge difference. when Because, well, I thought we're meditation. Should we meditate? Should we not meditate? What's meditation? Eastern meditation calls for an emptying of your mind. Biblical meditation calls for a filling of your mind. The filling of your mind with God's word, his promises, his principles, that I don't just read it, I think about, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to consume what I'm thinking, Lord, what are you trying to, what are you trying to say here, God? I want to meditate on what I just read. In so doing, the spirit of God aligns our minds with the mind of Christ and we're transformed into his likeness. Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also should not, shall not wither, and whatsoever he doth doeth shall prosper. And the ungodly are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Notice that it's talking about the person who delights in God's law. It's a reference to, to Scripture, to the written word. And he meditates on it. And the next thing the psalmist says is, this God is going to be like a tree that's planted by water. And when the winds come, he ain't blown around. There's deep roots that are there. And that's interesting because you go to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is trying to talk to the Ephesian church who there's some false doctrines blowing around. In Ephesians 4, he says, henceforth, be no more children tossed to and fro 
and carried about with every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. He's saying that people are trying to deceive you. And as, as believers, it's our responsibility. It's not even God's responsibility. God already gave us the tools. He already gave us the word. And it's there not only for, sometimes it's inspiration, correction. And, that, and I'll stop to say right now, there might be some things even in this church you say, I don't believe that. I don't think that's necessary. You know what? Don't, don't take my word on it. But also don't just stick to your traditions or what makes you feel comfortable. If you feel uncomfortable about something, go to the Word. Go to the Word and see if the Word says that his believers should be filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence to speak in other tongues. Go to the Word and see how were people baptized. Go to the Word and see if he still demands holiness and sanctification and separation from his people. Go to the word. Don't just cling to a tradition or what makes you comfortable, but don't even just cling to my belief or what I say. Go to the word and say, what saith the Lord? What does God say? And let the word speak because someone gave their life so you can hold a copy of the word in your language so you can see it for yourself. And so Paul, he's like, listen. Stop being blown around with all the things that are going on. He, he, there's this reference back even to the psalmist. If you want to be like a tree that's planted, that doesn't just blow around, the way we get that is meditate on the law day and night, that we're sitting there going, God, I want to get in your word so that when all the winds of all the things start blowing, I don't get blown around with it, that I'm grounded in, in saying, what does God's word say? Because I'm going to go back to that. Answers found. How do I not get wavering, deceived, loner? I love God's law. Meditate on it. Study it. How often? At all times. Morning, evening. Study it. And I'll say this as I turn to a close here. It is not the church's sole responsibility to teach scripture to your kids. It's yours. We have a great staff, great volunteers, people that pray and fast over their lessons, and they put so much time and effort and energy trying to creatively instill God's principles into your kids, and my kids too. But if the only word that they're getting is in a rock academy or rock church class, they are spiritually dying. Sometimes it's hard for me because I love people and I try to be kind, but when someone tries to blame me or the church for something that their kids are or are not doing, and I go, hold it. The fruit of the Spirit that I see from your tree does not tell me there's a lot of word in your house. I will accept some responsibility if we feel like the church is failing in some way or another. But it is not the church's sole responsibility to teach your kids the word. Deuteronomy 6 says, The words that I have commanded thee this day shall be in your heart. And thou, far as I know, there was not a refuge church wilderness going on right now. 
He says, thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. And thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in the house. So is your conversation biblically based or people and problem based? Is it gossip? Is it problems? Is it Hollywood? Is it fashion? Or is it, hey, what do you think about the word? Have you done your Bible reading today? Let's talk about what God means right here. I'm thankful for a mom and dad that forced me to get in the Word. Well, I'm just waiting for my kids to show a love for the Word, and then I'll encourage them to read it. Do you do that with chocolate and soda and school? I had a responsibility, me and my sister. And I can, you can talk to Pam. My goodness, we did not like it a lot. We had to read a chapter of the Bible. We had to read a chapter of the Bible. And it would vary. And at some point in seven days, you had to read through the chapter. Let's say it was Matthew 6. You had to read through the chapter. And then in your own words, we had to write. I don't know, this probably started when I was, you think 10 and you were 15 or was it younger? A little younger? So maybe a little younger. So maybe she was, I might have been eight and she might have been 13. And I don't think my dad was expecting any deep theological things from an eight-year-old that he could preach general conference with. (laughs) But he would say, You both have to read the passage and you had to just write in your own words, even if it's just a paragraph, what that meant to you, something that stuck out, something that in your own words that that you got out of that. And you know, believe it or not, me and Pam sometimes, it's probably Pam, not me, but sometimes didn't hand it in. And so my dad did not go, well, I'm asking a lot of a kid we learned responsibility it wasn't just theological it was life skills we would get grounded if we did not hand in on Monday by Monday morning our little paragraph on on what we thought out of this passage you know what I didn't always enjoy that at that age But I look back and I'm like, man, my parents forced us to get in the Word. I thought about doing that exact same thing in our house. And my wife politely reminded me, Gary, our kids are taking about four hours a day to memorize hundreds and hundreds of verses of Scripture. I think they're in the Word a lot. And I was like, yeah, that's a a good point. (laughs) But if you're not doing quizzing, what's going on in the home for the kids to get in the Word? You don't have to do it what my dad did. I'm not not saying everybody has to do that. But scripture says, you need to talk about it. Teach your kids. When you sit in the house, walk by the way. Walk up and down. Lie down. Rise up. Bind them for a sign upon your hand and shall be as frontlets between the eyes. I don't think he actually wanted them to like tattoo scripture right here, but there was wording there that was getting them to understand, hey, This isn't something you go to church once a week with. 
He says, parents, it's your responsibility. Your kids got to know this. Why? Because it's almost like God knew 2023 was coming and that the enemy would, would not, the enemy no longer, and I don't even know if he ever did, goes after just adults. The enemy wants to brainwash your child as early as possible with messages of the world of what's okay and what's not okay. And if all we're doing is handing someone electronics saying, going have fun and let them invest in my kids for hours because I'm too lazy to sit down and discuss the word with them. We have a responsibility. The greatest disciple you're going to make is, is your own child. The greatest disciple I'm going to make is my, my babies. That's even why three weeks from now or two weeks from now, I'm finishing this series next Wednesday. And I hate, I hate missing teaching. I love teaching. I love Wednesday nights. I love teaching the Word. But Kiera is speaking her first full message at the Elisha service on the 25th or whatever this month. I said to Brother Chester, man, can you come preach upstairs? Because there ain't no way that I am missing my baby girl's first message. Because I'm going to be down there going, I'll try and be <laughs> dignified. I'm gonna go, Amen. That's it. Yeah. I told her, I said, this is going to be great when you start traveling the world. She just kind of chuckled and I looked at her and I said, I'm not pushing you into that calling, honey. But I want you to understand you have what it takes. I want you to know that your biggest fan is dad. And you can do anything that God has called you to do. And so she's in there studying, getting ready for this. Goodness, I'm not a perfect parent, but I'm working hard to try to get the word in my kids. Because I know society's working hard to get a lot of other things in their lives. And so I want to make sure that they know what the Bible says, how to apply the word of God. Because he said, you got to teach it. Sit up, sit down, rise up, sit, lay down. You got to teach it. And I say this like, I do this, I do this. But this is the one right here, this lady that works morning, noon, and night when she's talented enough to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Might, might be one eventually, I don't know. But, but she works so hard to invest in our kids because that's her greatest priority. Teaching and articulating the truth of the word makes it, it takes a certain measure of knowing the word though. If you don't feel like you know the word, don't let that intimidate you from talking to your kids about the word. Be humble and say, you know what? Mommy, daddy, we don't, we don't really know it that much either, but we wanna, we, wanna, we wanna go on this journey together. This is the most important thing we're ever gonna do. God's calling us to do these things and to hear his word, to hide it in our heart, to teach it to our children and keep these principles before us. And as we go into 2023, where we are now, and this, is, and this was eventually my goal was to do this before we went into 2023, but it's not too late. Determine in your heart, I'm not gonna read the word just to inform I'm going to read the word to be transformed. Maybe it starts tonight before you go to bed. Maybe it starts in the morning. Waking up just a little bit earlier. 
I went through the statistics in our last session, last lesson, about how the, really the minute amount of time that it takes to read through the Word if we do it daily. God preserved His Word for you. And the next time you say, Lord, just would you speak to me? Just remember, He already has. Would you stand to your feet? Hopefully we feel a call in the Spirit. God has given us His Word. He doesn't just want to fill you with His Spirit. Absolutely does. He doesn't just want to wash away your sins. He absolutely does. But He also wants you to hide His Word in your heart that you might not sin against Him. He wants to equip you, challenge, change, correct, sometimes rebuke. He's going to use His Word to develop the person that He's calling us to be. We must make a commitment to be people of the word. That does not mean just hear a truth preaching church, preach it and teach it. But people of the word that says, I embrace the word and I am daily personally letting God speak to me from it and in his word. Would you find a place to pray right now? No doubt if you're a parent, maybe you feel the unction of the spirit, maybe you feel challenged. If you're not a parent and you're just saying, you know what, this is for me. My goodness, I got to get myself in the Word. But don't do it just because a preacher preached it and you feel bad. Do it because God is wanting to reveal Himself through the Bible. What a privilege we have to open up those pages and begin to see things that He preserved for us thousands of years ago.